On today's show, we discuss how technology is threatening critical thought and challenging the fabric of society. I am pleased to have a distinguished academic with me today. Dr. Nancy Etlinger is a professor of critical human geography at Ohio State University. I am interviewing her on her new book published in January called Algorithms and the Assault on Critical Thought. Digitalized Dilemmas of Automated Governance and Communitarian Practice. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Edlinger. How are things in Ohio? Great, thanks. And thank you for inviting me to your podcast series. Okay, can you talk about your background and research interests? Uh, Sure. I am currently working on problems of digital life. More generally, I am interested in how critiques of our social, political, economic, cultural environment offer insights into how to produce change, uh, how it is that people are governed and enrolled in a wide range of societal projects, for example, digitalization, neoliberalism, racial capitalism, neo-fascism, and what are the prospects for resistance? Um, I'm interested in the relationship between change and subjectivity as well. That is how it is that people feel about issues and how they understand themselves. Underscoring these questions is my concern for the relation between individuals and larger scale phenomena, firms, institutions, and societal projects, and an interconnected view of social, political, economic, and cultural processes. So I loved your book. And for me, it was a sort of like a string theory. You quite masterfully connect the dots using sociology, geography, anthropology, criminology, economics, political science, and computer science to kind of explain life in the U.S. today, especially as it relates to technology and inequality. And you spent significant time um, reading what computer scientists have had to say to glean their truths. And what I love about your book, you know, I learned a lot, especially new terms and new ways of thinking about all of this. This is an academic book, but it reads well, and I think everybody should read it. I love how you fit almost everything in U.S. life into the context of technology today. You even talk about Tupperware parties and soap dispensers, which I hope you'll talk about. So did I get this right? And do you have anything to add? Yes. And uh, and and thank you for all of that. Uh, in, the, in the introduction, I ended indicated that I researched the book on an interdisciplinary basis for an interdisciplinary audience, though I wrote the book as a critical human geographer to clarify the importance of thinking about context as well as a relational experience perspective that connects contexts. And you mentioned that I also read in computer science and related fields to glean how it is that AI scientists think and the assumptions on which they base their methods. And uh, this is because AI applications, even while producing new efficiencies, have been destructive insofar as they have deepened existing inequalities. Along with climate change, I regard the state of polarization along social, economic, political, cultural, and ecological lines as a major threat to society overall. Long ago, I was in anthropology, specifically archaeology, which commonly adopts quantitative methods. Overall, is guided by the scientific method and often is combined with other disciplines in interdisciplinary big science teams. So I, I actually have experience thinking about issues from very different perspectives and very different from how I see the world now and how I've seen the world 
world for most of my academic life. But this varied background has been helpful to me in recognizing different kinds of truths and sets of assumptions that undergird different areas of research. Right. I, I appreciate that. And I think that a lot of people think of geography as maps. And when I interviewed Dr. Barney Worf last week, he laid out his definition of human geography. So I, I'm impressed with how broad it is and how interdisciplinary it is. So in the beginning of your book, you lay out the history of the economic and social conditions in the United States, and a major focus was on Fordism. Can you talk about Fordism and just sort of set the stage for us about this period before the technology that we have today really took off? Uh, sure. The technical definition of Fordism is the moving assembly line, which Henry Ford uh, is credited with developing. A broader definition is an ensemble of specific institutional arrangements that permit the articulation of production and consumption. This articulation is an ideal state in which mass production connects with, with uh, mass consumption. Fordism emerged in the early 20th century, but didn't mature until after World War II, when several formal and informal institutional arrangements were put in place as a matter of policy. Firms entered into agreements with labor and government to open the door to collective bargaining for workers, notably in manufacturing industries, which was, was becoming globally competitive. Collective bargaining, in turn, enabled the development of middle-income wages, thereby by accounting for the rise of the U.S. middle class, which began to live specifically in the suburbs. After World War II, the GI Bill uh, enabled returning war veterans to buy homes in developing suburbs, which became places that spawned a new consumer culture of conspicuous consumption and keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> and this consumer culture, enabled by collective bargaining, produced continuous demand for the latest and greatest consumer goods being mass-produced in manufacturing. So in this way, production articulated with consumption. Right. And, you know, I read in your book about Tupperware parties and how they fit into this time period. And that was sort of an aha for me. Can you talk about Tupperware parties and the function they served? Sure. Uh, well, the wives of suburban men who produce new consumer items typically were housewives. Uh, newly settled families from city locations face new circumstances. Many moved to be able to have more space. Also, many lived, had lived in crowded, extended family households. And the suburbs offered a new freedom for nuclear families. Yet pre-existing kin networks that provided child and elder care as well as financial assistance were helpful. So the newfound freedom in the suburbs signified the need to develop, to construct networks. Parent-teacher associations were one mode of networking and another were Tupperware parties in which housewives socialized over punch and snacks while buying the new product of the day, plastic containers. Tupperware parties then functions as a means of connecting consumer culture with production while working for housewives as an opportunity to network as kin networks were dissolving. Now, the relevance of Tupperware parties to the story of continuity and change is that they were connected to a general culture of conspicuous consumption and displays of wealth. In the current period, when wealth has escaped so many people and communities, the internet, and specifically social media, has become a place in cyberspace where people self-expose, except in, uh, in the online environment, self-presentation, 
networking and self-exposure is discursive rather than material. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like this this is a little cynical on my part, but it sounds like Tupperware parties were sort of a plot by men to keep women busy so they didn't <laughs> compete in the workplace. Is that am I reading too much into that? Well, that might have been part of it, but it was also a means by which to advertise the products. It was an <laughs> advertising, it was an in-house advertising system that also afforded the opportunity of sociality for housewives that no longer had their kin networks ne- next door and needed right. some way to develop a support system. All the while, they were becoming dazzled by the latest and greatest Tupperware products that their husbands had some hand in, in producing. Yeah, that's interesting to me. So you devote a lot of time in chapter two to the relationship between production systems such as Fordism, post-Fordism, digital production, and their relation to inequality and broad technological change. Can you just talk about how inequality fits into all of this? Yes, sure. Let's start with Fordism during the period when it matured, what is often referred to as the golden age of Fordism. This golden age of Fordism actually was quite partial. The GI Bill, for example, was for returning war veterans who were white men. Women and persons of color who served in the war did not receive the benefits, and persons of color, notably at that time Black Americans, were denied access to the suburbs and any place white people were concentrated through formal redlining practices and informal place-specific racial covenants. Further, collective bargaining historically was mainly for white men and unavailable to women, Black Americans, immigrants, as well as populations in other countries where Fortis branch plants were located. The narrative about the golden age of Fordism is an example of history written by and for a white population, a white male population at that. And so the technological changes of the Fordist deal for white men encompassed the moving assembly line as well as infrastructural change that enabled the building of freeways ringing around the newly constructed highway system so that white men could commute to work. But those freeways commonly sliced through inner city Black neighborhoods that were treated as expendable, in turn fragmenting those communities and breaking up support networks with few choices as to where to move. So the effects of technological change are classed, racialized, and uh, engendered. So by the late 1960s and early 70s, East Asian countries were becoming increasingly competitive and began to make an impact in global markets for consumer goods that resulted in a declining share of the global market for U.S. goods. Also, European countries had rebuilt their industries following World War II. In addition to increasing competition, U.S. firms also were stressed in the context of oil crises, which affected production of the numerous consumer products in which petroleum was an ingredient. U.S. manufacturing firms responded by reducing the scale of production to avoid the cost of warehousing goods that weren't selling due to the competitive markets, and they also shut down a lot of manufacturing operations they had owned and instead some contracted out to independent firms. 
The advantage of subcontracting is that the cost of labor is very low. Wages are low and workers do not receive benefits and unionization is not an option. So cost cutting occurred on the terrain then of labor. It was in this post-Fordist environment that the U.S. middle class began declining along with unionization, which enabled, which was part of the collective bargaining agreement. Meanwhile, new technological developments enabled the emergence of the logistics industry whose job it was to render distance between producers and the market as insignificant as possible. As a result, firms could subcontract with other firms relatively easily across large distances, enabling the exporting of manufacturing operations and therefore of jobs. So the consequence was the loss of jobs in the United States while in the United States, the kinds of jobs that had sustained the middle class had been, the, the wages for those jobs had been declining. So the precarious conditions that Black Americans, women, and immigrants faced now were extended to the entire population, although persons of color commonly bear the harshest bar burdens. A labor studies scholar named Guy Standing wrote a book in 2011 called The Precariat, a play on the word proletariat, to refer to the large, internally heterogeneous class of people across gender, race, ethnicity, and so forth, who lead fundamentally precarious lives with little opportunity for securing stable living wage jobs. Yeah, I like this term precariat. Sorry to interrupt. So did mm -hmm. the precariat, did that apply mostly to white people or was it? It, it was, it, the, the point of the, the term is to signal that everybody is in the same boat and yet right. their circumstances are nonetheless different. So for example, you could have two people that have no security, no mm -hmm. job, no security, but one of them might have a credit card and one might not. Right. So it was it, the level of precariousness was different for white people versus black people. That's right. Okay. And for single women and uh, with children and, and, and so forth. So, so yeah, so the cir circumstances varied, but the general condition of precarity became extended to the entire population. And that is also reflected in, in the changing class structure in the United States, in which beginning in, in the 1970s, then with post-Fordism, you have this precipitous decline of the of the middle class. Right. And the systemic racism was just intense, the white flight. And, you know, it's interesting, as you say this, I remember my high school was about 50-50 uh, black and white, which I really appreciated. But we got on different buses. I mean, I went to white yeah. neighborhoods. They went to black neighborhoods. The segregation seemed to really take off when I guess a lot of people of color couldn't afford or weren't allowed to go into those neighborhoods and there was redlining and all of that. Okay, so so post-Fordist production, which entails subcontracting under conditions of low wages, no benefits, and no unions, and pertains to all sectors of the economy at this point, certainly not just manufacturing, but also, also services. It extends into the present, but is now complemented by the steady growth of the digital economy and digital production. So digital production renders life even more precarious through different processes. And just um, to name a few, well, 
there's digital workers in the gig economy who work for DoorDash, Uber, and the like, mm -hmm. um, as well as uh, workers who perform tasks on platforms in which uh, firms post tasks requesting services. So for all of these kinds of workers, gig workers, workers who are working on uh, online platforms, they are treated as independent contractors, and therefore, they lack any kind of employee rights. Their wages are considerably lower than the wages that are now paid to manufacturing workers. And so what's happened is that digital production has institutionalized the informalization of work. And right. so work is, in effect, informal in digital production. And meanwhile, the post-fortist kinds of operations themselves are very low paying, even though they also render life precarious, but digital production processes render life even more precarious, uh, prompting another labor studies scholar, uh, Ursula Hughes, to come up with another term for the digital era, namely the cybertariat. <laughs> and like the precariat, the cybertariat also is uh, large, it's large and it's growing, and it refers to people trying to patch together a living through jobs and tasks that have been generated through the digital economy. And like the precariat, it also is internally heterogeneous. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because the corporations sort of control people's lives and, you know, there aren't benefits for these jobs. And, you know, it's just like when people have their shift changed at the last minute, sometimes they can pull something or they don't they don't get the gig or whatever. And what was I never thought about this, but in your book, you talked about how even consumers are sort of working for free because we're spending all this time providing data to these corporations. So can can you talk about that a little? Yeah, thank you. That's a really good. Uh, that's a really good point. So, so on the one hand, there are people who are trying to earn a wage through the digital economy, and at the same time, just everyday everybody, everyday consumers are working not for a wage simply by being active online. And so such that their digital footprints then are used by tech firms for profit. They monitor us for our tastes, our preferences, for where we go, what we like, who we see, who our friends are, what they like, and so forth. Also, that firms can make a profit from our data. And so one might argue that that is labor but without a wage and yeah. usually without recognition on the part of the consumer that right. they are actually working for these firms for firms as profit. Right. We're kind and, of, we're kind of providing them free market research and free focus groups, right? Absolutely. 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 That's right. Yeah. And, and another point, by the way, that I wanted to make is, is that the, the circumstances of the combination of post-Fordism and digital production also connect with uh, the practices of self-presentation and exposure on social media. Because what happens is that many people spend a lot of time on social media in light of the problems of securing a stable living wage jobs to try to brand themselves. And people spend quite a bit of work presenting them, self-presenting online mm -hmm. and social media and, and self-exposing in the hopes of securing a job. And so this is what 
some people have called the jackpot economy because most of the time, a lot of the activity that people spend online and for which and, and the data of which firms are scraping for their uses Mm-hmm. Uh, people are use, spending some of this time not just to be social, but to look for a job. And and very rarely do people get jobs from this kind of job search. So it's aspirational. They're hoping for a job. Right. And then it's like a jackpot if you get it because people don't usually. It's almost like it becomes almost like an addictive, aspirational part of social media use. Um, yeah, the jackpot is only for a few people that hit the jackpot. And uh, for a lot of people, they're just sort of wasting their time with sort of false hopes, I guess. Um, you, yes, you were- and, be- yeah. and becoming increasing, increasingly anxious. So all of this also contributes to the kinds of anxieties that develop around substantial and extensive uh, online use. Yeah, this is kind of a rabbit hole, but, you know, my students just freak out. They say they're ghosted if somebody doesn't respond right away. And I said, you know, (laughs) thinking that a lot of these young people, they get anxious because they put themselves out there. They don't get hits. They don't get jobs. And they feel kind of like they're ghosted. And then that creates anxiety. Is that kind of how you see it? Yes, but in in the case of people putting in enormous amounts of of labor in the hopes of getting a job, ghosting is is all the more significant on top of uh, the idea, you know, the thought that one could be rejected. Yeah, I guess not just being rejected by by somebody. It's also failed hopes, you know, a, a failed another failed search. Yeah, right. And I think it just ties in psychologically to people's sense of well-being tied into this needing this reassurance that they, they're probably not going to get. And I think that's why or, or needing the job they're not going to get. And I think that's why they get kind of anxious when they don't get a return a text right away, which I just think is unhealthy. Yeah, no, I I, I would agree. <laughs> So I think you've already touched on this, but you write about the social and psychological aspects of technology. And one thing that stood out to me, and this is a major concern to me, is the idea that apps sort of reduce the burden of thought. And the Mm -hmm. way I think of it is that smart devices make us stupid. Can you talk to this and give us some examples? Sure. Well, let's just just let's just take a really mundane example. Like, so for example, our phones, when we're on our phones and we text, our, our sentences, our word is finished for us. And sometimes <laughs> our sentence is, is finished for us. And of course, the, the major development since, since I, my book was published is, is chat GPT, which, uh, which answers all of our questions about just about everything beyond chat GPT. Then you've got recommendation algorithms that tell us who our friends should be, what books to read and so on. So increasingly the, the devices and apps that have been made available to us allow us to devolve our thinking to a computer. And so some research has actually shown that young people growing up in the digital era have difficulty focusing because of all of the constant informational distractions and recommendations. And some people have even argued that the that reading ability has, has declined in this kind of a context. Yeah, I see that with my students. I mean, I, I see it every day, unfortunately. So how is thoughtfulness weaponized? Right. Okay. So I I suggest, I think that we can react to the problems of computers taking over our thinking by refusing all of that, by by being thoughtful, by proactively, self-consciously being thoughtful. 
and using critical thinking to counter problems and societal ills. So in a digital context, rather than rejecting the digital infrastructure, it is possible to use it towards positive ends. And so one striking example is uh, segments of the Twitterverse that have formed around marginalized communities to resist and counter problems rooted in uh, discriminatory actions, such as, for example, racism. And so one of those segments is, is Black Twitter, which is a, is a truly notable example. There's lots of different segments on the Twitterverse. And, and so Black Twitter has served Black communities by serving as a place in cyberspace where victims of racism can share their stories and garner support and also organize and react to discriminatory acts. Uh, social media appropriately is cast as a means by which big tech firms manipulate people for profit. But it can be used subversively to engage and counter problems creatively and cooperatively. So I would say that Black Twitter is about place making in cyberspace to provide support and networked activity. That's interesting because I think of all this segmentation where people on the right are directed to this certain social media and uh, the dark web and all of that. And I always thought of the segmentation as being bad, contributing polarization. But here's an example of like Twitter where it can be good because it can help people to mobilize and strategize. Is everything else white Twitter? Uh, no, there are, there's Twitter for Asians, there's gay Twitter, there's, there's all sorts of different segments of the Twitterverse. And I'm, I'm on the same page with you about the problem of the segmentation of, of information outlets that creates polarization, but it can be extremely positive in the case of marginalized communities who really need support. And certainly people who people on Black Twitter get trolled, and there are people who from outside Black Twitter who might come on. But in general, that community has pretty much remained intact. In chapter three, you write about education and the pedagogy of technocracy and what you call ed tech. And, you know, there's somebody who teaches, this sort of fascinates me. So can you talk about that? Sure. Um, so ed tech is an industry that is an assemblage of devices, apps, software, hardware, and platforms that datafy uh, student knowledges. And by datafy, I mean that it refers to the appropriation, the quantification, examination, and manipulation of data from people's students' digital footprints for profit. All of this information is acquired from learning platforms in schools, colleges, and universities, as well as from student transcripts, application materials, digital records through card swiping at school to get into rooms, uh, social media, and the internet more broadly. The new business complex of education that is in, very much involved in the edtech industry includes new online universities, MOOCs, M-O-O-C-S, uh, which stands for Massive Online Open Courses Offered Through Private Universities to Global Student Markets. MOOCs. Long MOOCs, <laughs> M-O-O-C. And, oh, okay. And, and a little S. Uh, yes. And so these are courses that famous professors at private universities offer online to a global market. And, uh, you know, all they do is they give lectures online. And of course, everything's automated and 
evaluated in that regard. It's all pre it's all prepackaged and this and the instructors are sort of on the sidelines, right? When they Exactly. That exactly. Other actors in this in this sort of new biz, educational business complex are long-standing ed tech firms such as Pearson or Coursera, new ed tech firms as well as big tech firms. So Google for example, now has its own online courses that students can take at a very low prices, like, for example, $49 a course, <laughs> and they can earn a certificate in a matter of months that can stand in for a college degree on the job market, including on the for the job market at Google. Oy. <laughs> this is a lot for me to take in. Yeah, it's really, it is, it's, it's, uh, well, I'm a professor too. So yes, it's tough. Yeah, and, you know, and I guess I would have to say that I don't know very, I don't know people who are aware of any of this. Well, yeah, I mean, some of us are, but not to this extent. And, you know, I'll just share that other instructors often tell me to just use these pre-made content and just sit back and supervise from the sidelines. I refuse to do it. I create my own PowerPoints, assignments, my own lectures, and I read every paper I grade. And I, I guess I am just rebelling against this ed tech model. And it's a lot of work for me and, and people think I'm crazy and I guess I'm stubborn, but I get satisfaction from seeing students learn and having interaction. And um, I'll just quote from your book. You write that, quote, the development of the ed tech industry also has implications for the declining role of professors in higher education. Can you just talk about this? It's such an important question. And I, um, Already, AI tutors are standing in for professors, and the new pedagogy renders teachers, uh, as I think you pointed out, guides on the side to <laughs> large volumes of information that are that students are constantly confronted with, while evaluation of students increasingly is automated on learning platforms. The tenure system already has dissolved in at least a handful of universities, and local legislatures in many states are demanding the same of their public institutions. Meanwhile, tech developments such as blockchain are providing sophisticated automated accounting systems so that students can transfer credits across universities. One enthusiast of this system has indicated his vision of the future in which people now considered professors in the future will mainly advise students where they can enroll in a course from pools of universities around the world. That's terrible. Yes. <laughs> Just my, yes. little, my little editorial there. You know, to this point, you write about CBET, which is competency-based education training. And this emerged, I guess, in the 1950s. And, you know, this is the norm now. And I'm certified in QM, which is quality management. And I have spent a lot of time on this. And they certify most instructors around the country now who teach any kind of online classes. And most large public universities that offer any kind of online courses require this training. And it's all about, you know, competencies and GLOs and PLOs. And I guess I should explain these uh, terms. So GLO is just general learning outcome. PLO is, is program learning outcome. And then there's all kinds of other, you know, ELOs and on and on. But, you know, 
you argue that this competency-based education is not always education per se, but rather this training. And, you know, I do notice that in these QM classes, the instructor is just, as you put, like a sideline observer, and they the, per, the instructor will write an affirmation, like, this is an excellent post, but the focus is really on the learner and the system. And, um, you know, you argue that this student-centric model of CBT, CBET, ignores students who need more attention. So ironically, it's all about lining up activities to outcomes and ensuring that these outcomes are met. And yet you argue in your book that um, CBET proponents have not been able to provide any evidence that CBET produces better learning outcomes than traditional teacher-student models. And this just made me laugh because they're talking about outcomes and they haven't been able to demonstrate that their system produces better outcomes. So can you elaborate on this? Yeah, sure. So CBET, I I just call it CBET, but it encompasses assessment of how students do in the programs relative to the prescribed learning outcomes. But to date, there has been no comparison of how students perform who are trained in different pedagogies. So there's a lot of assessment that happens in, in CBET pedagogy but it's all within the CBET pedagogy. In, in other words, here are the here here are the prescribed learning outcomes. How are people doing? Are they emerging? Are they developing? Are they proficient, etc.? But there's no there just has never ever been a comparison of how students do on prescribed learning outcomes in using a CBET pedagogy as opposed to a different kind of pedagogy. It just simply nobody who has in the C- the community, so to speak, has ever thought to even do that. It's it's mainly that it's just sold as this is the way education is. This is it. Right. Nobody questions it. It's just like the way it is. And, That's right. Uh, and, and my main view is that the problem with the pedagogy is that uh, a pedagogy that's based on outcomes, that that is aimed only at outcomes, is a skills-based program. Now, uh, learning skills for students is critical. It's important in order to get a job. But if that's all you're doing, that's not enough. You need to have other knowledges that give students the frame of reference so that they can ask questions about what they're applying their skills to. Right. It just occurred to me that, you know, you and I are wonky teachers. It just occurred to me that we might need to just explain or, you know, define pedagogy uh, just briefly. Do you want to do that? Oh, sure. It's a, it's just it's an approach to it's how you it's how you teach it, and it's approach to the teaching learning enterprise. And so right. one way to approach it is with I'm going to prescribe outcomes for you. Another way is to discuss problem, you know, just just by way of example, you you introduce students to some problems, you let them work it out, you engage students in discussion. They you see how they understand what the problem is, why they need certain skills for certain things. That's a lot different from just presenting students with with something that will get them to a, a particular learning outcome that's about that's wrapped around a skill without yeah, and, anything else associated with it. Right. And I like to use the Socratic method. And do you think that this new prepackaged education is at odds with that? 
Oh, certainly. What, well, of course, the ironic aspect of all of this is that CBED is, is sold as being student-centered. And mm-hmm. the reason why it's sold as being student-centered is that it allows students to work at their own pace because everything's automated. So, you know, you have some students are presented with tasks and so they do it. They complete a task. When students are taught in such a way that they are supposed to develop skills so that they can, you know, they can take skills to a particular job, it doesn't mean that they understand the issues around those skills. And so the reason why CBET is counter to the Socratic method is that students are never asked questions about what they think. And so this becomes, uh, they are guided to a particular outcome, whereas the Socratic method draws students out to to connect their knowledges to then connect a variety of issues. So the critical thinking is a casualty of this, right? Yes, but I, I, the other thing that I would say is is that there's no student-centeredness. And in other words, it's called student-centeredness because it permits students to work at their own pace. And that is supposed, that is the crux of student-centeredness in the, in the CBET pedagogy. But, right, because it's not really individualized to different students with different abilities and different ways of looking at the world and different cultures. It's sort of a irony, right? I mean, they talk about student center, but it's just student centered in terms of working at your own pace, but it's not really student centered in terms of people thinking critically and, um, you know, trying to figure things out on their own, right? Yes. And it also is not student centered. And in so far as nobody asks the students what kind of outcomes they're interested in. Interesting. Wow. I never thought about like that. So let's talk about ethics, because I'm interested in this. And how does ethics play into all of this or lack of? Well, um, if you are the the problem with ethics in uh, this sort of automated CBET uh approach through the ed tech industry is that is is similar to what happens when consumers data is scraped by by tech firms right it's the same basically it's the it's a matter of the problems that people talk about in broader society that is spread to the education sector everything that students do online including on social media can potentially be used in the edtech industry to evaluate their performance so for example if somebody indicates online to somebody what they ate for lunch that that could be entered as a piece of information because what people do when they examine problems through big data analysis is that analysis is based on correlations. And so you can have all sorts of of different pieces of information. And if they are correlated, that produces a pattern, which then is used in evaluation of students. And furthermore, Students don't even know that this is happening. And at this point in time, most professors don't know that it's happening. Right. And that brings me to my next question. So there's no doubt in my mind that the replacement of traditional brick and mortar public universities, you know, that have tenured faculty with this new monetized ed tech has had detrimental consequences. And you argue that this lack of 
critical education has effects downstream in workplaces. And, you know, I suspect it affects all aspects of society. Can you elaborate on the downstream effects of this new ed tech and what I think of as assembly line education? Yes. Well, without the knowledge to connect the tasks of a job with broad societal problems, people will just do their job, so to speak. So here are a few examples. Uh, researchers have found that tech workers routinely avoid thinking and dealing with inequalities embedded in platforms and data scientists, practitioners tend to think about ethics as something that you do on your own time. So people working on aspects of data science in any capacity tend to think of themselves as just doing their job and need not be concerned about the connection between what they do and what users of their products do with what they have produced. And speaking of users of their products, I want to talk about young people. I have the fortune, and it is a fortune, of interacting with eh, people from 17 to 20-somethings on a regular basis, which I appreciate, even though they don't get any of my (laughs) cultural references and don't know who Ronald Reagan was. I asked them about 9-11, and one kid said, I was two years old. (laughs) So (laughs) I feel old all the time. So many scholars have characterized trust into categories. And for for example, in 2015, University of Illinois professors Hoff and Bashir suggested a three-level trust model that includes dispositional, situational, and learned trust. And they argued that dispositional trust is the most unwavering, and it's basically a person's inclusive tendency to trust automation. And younger people have a higher level of dispositional trust, and this makes them more likely to trust in AI, biometrics, et cetera. And when I talk to my students, and again, these are teens and 20-year-olds, even if they see aspects of technology as nefarious, which they do, they just seem to accept it. And I think they're just much more likely to just download an app and use any form of technology than than older people. So do you agree with my assessment? And how do high levels of dispositional trust you know, among youth bode for prospects of putting the brakes on the dark side of technology? Well, I think it's important to revisit the point about relegating our thought to the machine, to algorithms. So growing up with increasingly available conveniences that do your thinking um, for you disposes people to accept what is making your life easier without question. And this is where education comes in. So without critical education, students have no frame of reference. And so they therefore will be disposed to the status quo. Now, I just as an anecdote, I taught a course this past spring focused on smart cities and how ordinary citizens can claim their right in a smart city context that often delivers injustices. And so my university just went through a period of restructuring of general education requirements, and my course is in a required category of courses that students must take. So unsurprisingly, students signed up because the course fit their schedule. No one entered the course with any knowledge of the subject. Nobody (laughs) knew very much about the internet. Nobody knew what smart cities were. Most were unaware that just about all cities around the world are engaged in some level of smartification that affect um, urban life. And uh, so this is actually our world that we live in that, that that all of these students have no idea about. Well, I found that once students had information about what was going on around them, 
they became engaged, interested, and furthermore, appalled at injustices. So I would argue that it's the governing system for which I have lost my faith, not not people. And, you know, a big theme of this research is that individuals just surrender their personal agency and their data is colonized for profit without consent and people have no control or rights and their data is weaponized. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Well, I come back to the point about the importance of critical thinking, and uh, in the domain of education, students should be exposed to a critical appraisal of their world to equip them to raise questions, not just to answer them, answer pre-prescribed questions. Uh, So the sorry point here is that right now, local legislatures around the country are working to ban books and eliminate critical knowledges, as well as the professors who want to help students develop a broad frame of reference in which to situate the skills uh, that they need to learn to get a job. Well, I appreciate that clarification. And so um, we're going to wrap this podcast up and then... On the next podcast, I will continue my conversation with Dr. Edlinger, and we will talk about how all of this is playing out today and the effects of all of this on people's lives. Thank you so much, Dr. Edlinger. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Bill, for having me. Such a pleasure to be with you again. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.